Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Growing impatient, the Cleveland Press runs an editorial urging police to take action against the prime suspect. Four days later, a front-page editorial increases pressure on the police. The following day, the press devotes most of its front page to the case. An editorial addressed directly to the county coroner, Dr. Gerber, urges an immediate inquest. The next day, an inquest begins. I jumped off the couch and ran upstairs. I thought I saw a white form standing in our bedroom. Then I think I was struck from behind and knocked out. When I came to, I went over to where Marilyn was. I felt she was gone. I believe I then rushed into our son Chip's room. After seeing him, I came to the conclusion he was unharmed. As I came out of Chip's room, I thought I heard a noise downstairs. I spotted a figure near the outside door, and I chased it down the path toward the beach. Growing impatient, the Cleveland Press runs an editorial urging police to take action against the prime suspect. Four days later, a front-page editorial increases pressure on the police. The following day, the press devotes most of its front page to the case. An editorial addressed directly to the county coroner, Dr. Gerber, urges an immediate inquest. The next day, an inquest begins. Newspapers headline Coroner Gerber's theory that the murder weapon was a surgical instrument. This theory, never proved but widely publicized, is damaging to Dr. Shepard. Meanwhile, all of Cleveland awaits an answer to the question that has gone unanswered for three months. Who, in the early morning hours of July 4th, murdered Marilyn Shepard? Was it her husband, Sam Shepard, as the state charges? Or was it a mysterious, bushy-haired intruder, as claimed by Dr. Shepard? We, the jury in this case, being duly impaneled and sworn, do find the defendant, Sammy Shepard, not guilty of murder in the first degree, but guilty of murder in the second degree. James C. Bird, former. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman. And this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On last week's episode, I gave you the timeline and the nuts and bolts of the murder of Marilyn Shepard, along with the media sensation surrounding the trial of her husband, Sam. On this week's episode, I have the one and only Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast to break down the Shepard case. We will discuss the suspects, the trial, the wrestling career, as well as some of the more sensational aspects of the murder of Marilyn Shepard. We will discuss whether we think Richard Eberlein is a good suspect, as well as whether or not we think Sam was involved. And to recap, the murder of Marilyn Shepard happened on the night of July 3rd, 1954, after a night of hosting friends for dinner and cocktails. Sam said he got into a confrontation with a bushy-haired man shortly after midnight, and that he was knocked out not once, but twice, as he chased the man down the shores of Lake Erie. Sam became a media magnet. He was good-looking, affluent, and a doctor. Marilyn was beautiful, and she was a homemaker, as well as taught Bible lessons at the local Methodist church. Once the press got a hold of the case, they were off and running. Daily headlines called for Sam's arrest, and again, that did not help the prosecution, at least in the end, and gave no chance of Sam being acquitted. So the case turned out to be, at the time, the longest trial in American history. The murder of Marilyn Shepard and the eventual acquittal of Sam served as the inspiration for the 1960s television show The Fugitive, and then into an Academy Award-winning movie starring the one and only Harrison Ford. Nobody other than Sam was taken to trial for the murder of his wife and the mother of their son, Chip. This is one of the reasons the case still fascinates not only the community, but the country. Who killed Marilyn Shepard? So let's get into my conversation with Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast and see if we can't talk this out. 
I am very lucky to have Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast on this very special 100th episode of Who Killed. He has been a mentor along the way, and uh, I really do appreciate him joining me on many episodes. And I know that he has a little bit of knowledge about the case that we are discussing. And again, that's the case of Who Killed Marilyn Shepard. Nick, thanks again for joining me. Good morning, Bill. You are lucky to have me. I'm not as lucky. I'm lucky to be on your show and be talking with you on this beautiful morning. However, this is a very difficult case to to really kind of figure out who actually did this. And I listened to part one, and you did a fantastic job of laying out everything, all of the, the bits of knowledge that everybody needs to know going into this case. And for the younger listeners, one thing that they may not be able to fully grasp when looking at this case is this case was was huge. This was big, big news. And I liken this case to the John Bonet Ramsey case. It really shares a lot of similarities when you start to think about it. We have a case where they're basically trying someone in the public eye and in the newspapers and through the media. And we have a similar situation where you're left at the end of the day going, okay, this is a brutal homicide. It's still unsolved 65 years later. And we're, we're left going, okay, was it an intruder or was it someone inside the home that killed this woman? And of course the, the family itself is polarizing just as the Ramsey's were. I mean, we're talking about people that are fairly well to do. And back in 1950s, this is the handsome young doctor. He's married to the beautiful young woman. They got the perfect life from the outside. And when you peel back the curtain and you look inside, you, you figure out that things are not so perfect as they rarely are in most homes throughout America. And Shepard is a, um, well, he, he's a skirt chaser and he's probably not that great of a, um, of a husband and a, and a family man. And we have this situation where from the, from the very onset of it, it looks pretty cut and dried where, okay, there must've been some kind of argument. There must've been some kind of blow up between these two things got violent. Shepard lost his cool flew off the handle and beat Marilyn to death. And now he's got to cover this thing up, but it's just not that simple. Is it when you, when you dive into this case, when you go through Shepard's story of what happened that night, when you, when you overlap that with what the neighbors say with their, what their friends said that were visiting that night. And then we have, the son, Chip, as well, who who hears nothing, sees nothing, the only other person in the home. And he, he, for the rest of his life, fights for his father's good name to clear his father's name in the murder of his mother. It's, it's truly a fascinating case. And I understand why it has not been solved all of these years later, although it's been it's been tried many times. Yeah, you know, and it it is very interesting the the whole media aspect and how much of the media played a role in this case. And, you know, obviously there's parallels between this case, the trial and the OJ Simpson trial, especially with the similarities considering F. Lee Bailey was a part of both uh both cases. And, you know, that goes to say something about his longevity. Uh but nonetheless, the reason for this case, I think, for be not being solved also is I, I talked about it in early part of the episode in part one about how basically everybody was able to just wander through the house and disturb the crime scene before it was even, you know, closed to the public or close. I mean, there were neighbors walking through. There were authorities, reporters, uh, reporters. I mean, I mean yeah. This was not a clean crime scene as far as, as that goes. And, and it was um, brutal. It was a brutal homicide. And throughout the, 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 the battle, you know, if, if we are to believe Dr. Shepard's story of what went down that night when he woke up and discovered his wife was being brutally attacked 
and then he has to he has to fight this man and he's knocked out knocked unconscious twice um if we are to believe his story well then that crime scene that home and on down to the the beach area that's all incredibly important to investigators however now you have everybody and their brother stepping all over your crime scene and there should have been things there should have been clues and evidence within that crime scene to really point us in one direction or the other because the the, the two possibilities are are very different from one another and uh, there there's a big difference in a crime scene having there been a, a fourth person in that home. Um, as you said, this is a brutal attack. There should be evidence of that individual inside that home. And then when you put all these other yahoos in there, well, that just convolutes the whole the whole mess altogether. Yeah, I mean, it basically throws fingerprint evidence out the window. And if you think about it, the, one of the most interesting aspects of, of the murder itself is chip was like six feet from the bedroom where Marilyn was killed and for as awful as a murder as it was i don't know how we couldn't have heard the murder taking place it's just that i don't know i don't know it's it's something that's very difficult to wrap your head around that that chip would not have woke up at some point during this attack regardless of who the attacker was right and yet it, it appears that he did not. And I don't have any reason to not believe him. And I find it in very much in Sam Shepard's favor, Dr. Shepard's favor, that Chip spent a good majority of his life trying to clear his father's name. Yeah, I mean, I remember growing up, you know, in the 90s, basically, I think in 1989 is when Sam Jr. stepped forward and basically started fighting for his dad's, you know, name to be cleared. And so all through the 90s, I remember that that being one of the headline stories on the local news. Basically, you know, anytime something came up and I think it was in 96 that they started reinvestigating the case. And it's just, you know, the whole the fact that. Okay, so 1996, that's 42 years after the murder. And we already know that within 48 hours, it's already tough to solve a crime. It's imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine right. 42 years. And, uh, and that's what, you know, we run into that with a lot of cold cases, I think. And I think that's why a lot of cold cases don't get solved is because people just obviously don't remember, die, memories fade. It just is what it is. And the thing that stands out the most to me about this case is his story about, you know, fighting with this bushy haired man and the fact that he was knocked out twice. And I think that I just don't know. I mean, is that even possible? <laughs> well, I'm not a doctor. I know you went to school for computer. So, you know, I don't I guess I guess it's possible. So my little understanding of concussions come from the NFL and everything they've taught us about the dangers of concussions and such. And one thing that I learned from um, reviewing their process and, and the information they've put out over the years is that once you've had one concussion, the second and third and fourth concussion are, they're that much easier to get. Um, so it's, it's a, um, and therein lies the problem. And that's why you see with like the NFL where they'll make, they'll make a, a player sit out for next week or a period of weeks because they're worried that you just bump this guy on the head. He might get another one real quick. So that is my limited understanding of, of that situation. But one thing that's, that's bizarre in this case, and this case is unique for so many different reasons. And I think we'll go through, let's go through some of that right now. First, the first thing that you see after you get past the the crime scene, the the contaminated crime scene with everybody stepping all over the place and um, putting their fingers all over the place. You know, we should also point out this is the 50s. And back then, fingerprint evidence was considered the way we could talk about DNA evidence today. It was that um, damning back then. And um, 
So, so that's the, the first hurdle. And then the second hurdle is such a unique situation where, you know, we still hold doctors in, in high regard and in high esteem, but even more so back then. And you, you were almost locally famous, you know, famous at the local level if you were the, the doctor or the surgeon in town. Sure. And ev- everybody knew you were the doctor. Yeah, my grandfather was was the was a urologist and on the west side of Cleveland in the 1950s. So and everywhere he went, people <clears throat> probably called him doctor. That that's oh, who yeah. they knew him Doc- to be. Doctor Huffman. <laughs> and so back then, especially you have uh, you have officers who are interviewing a, a guy that they consider to be a suspect, but also somebody that they hold in high regard, that they have a certain level of respect for. And so there's that imbalance of inferiority going on but then let's go ahead and compound that with the fact that you're going to interview this man because he he may be a victim himself Mm -hmm. and he has sustained several injuries regardless if he got them from fighting off maryland's attacker or if he got them from killing his wife yeah because he was injured Yes, he he was physically he was physically and visibly injured. It was um, there's no doubting that. So they take him to be treated for his injuries, and we're going to interview him while he's being treated or shortly after being treated for these injuries. Well, where is that questioning the the initial questioning going to take place at a hospital where this guy's going to feel comfortable because he's a doctor? But let's oh. It's the hospital he works at. Oh, it's the hospital that his family owns. He's got brothers and a father that work there as well. So yep, this is not an interrogation or questioning this man under the hot lights in some in some dark, uh, you know, uh, smoky police room at the, at the station down at the, you know, take him down to the station and grill this guy. No, this is this dude is lying in a hospital bed. He's giving his side of the story and he's, he's being, sedated. He's sedated. Um, we should all be sedated. Uh, but <laughs> the, the um, to say, <laughs> <laughs> given the current state of affairs, um, but it, it, not only that, this dude is he's he's the king of the ring at this hospital, right? It, he's mm-hmm. he's in there being treated like a king. Nurses coming in and out while he's giving his uh, account of what's going on, and you know, uh, tending to his every need. And then he goes off into this very doctor scientific type speak when he's giving his account of what went down that night. It's almost like he's writing an entry in some kind of an article for like a medical journal or something. And, and so when the public views Shepard's point of view and account of what went down, they're not going to be able to identify with this. And and that's that also becomes an issue here for Shepard and for the case itself. If he is a victim, if his wife was murdered inside their home by, by an intruder, then this man is a victim. However, he is not likable to the public. Mm-mm. There's nobody outside of his son and his immediate family that are saying uh, Sam didn't do this. Shepard didn't do this. No, the general public are going, this guy cheat was cheating on his wife. Uh, he, he, he put on the, the, the front of a, a do-gooder of a healer of somebody who, who takes care of the community. And in reality, he's a bad guy. He's a bad husband. If you cheat on your wife, you cheat on anything. And, that that is it makes him not likable it makes him not identifiable with the with the general public and then you know what sells newspapers better than anything i mean okay box scores sell newspapers elections sell newspapers but even better than that especially for longevity Mm -hmm. jack the ripper Zodiac, the Unabomber, those guys sold a hell of a lot of newspapers and still sell a lot of books about them. I mean, the paper that there's still books written about Jack the Ripper every year. I mean, that case is 120 years old. And this case became big, big news. And guess what that meant? A lot of newspapers being sold in the the Cleveland area. We had two newspapers at the time. We had the Cleveland Press and the Cleveland Plain Dealer. 
and evening editions as well. And now their headlines are being broadcast throughout the country. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, these are two of the biggest papers in the in the country as far as what people want to know, what people want to to hone in on. And they really latched on to this idea of Shepard being the number one suspect. And they kept telling and pushing and pushing. Why aren't they questioning this guy? Why haven't they arrested this guy? Why haven't hasn't there not been an inquest to the point where it, it it's they're almost like they're pacing it out over a period of weeks to keep stringing along the readers, mm-hmm. right? And and they don't have Shepard's best interest in, at oh. heart. They don't, they don't give a shit about the investigation at the end of the day either. Their job is to sell newspapers. And they did a brilliant job of pacing this thing out over several weeks to, to string along these readers and these buyers to, the, to where it led up to the, the climax of the do it now, Dr. Gerber. You know, they're, they're screaming it from the mountaintops. Let's have an inquest. And when you didn't have to read between the lines to understand they weren't screaming for an inquest, that's the PC thing to do. Mm-hmm. Let's call We We demand an inquest. No, you didn't have to read between the lines to understand they were calling for his arrest to arrest Dr. Shepard, try him, lock him up, throw away the key. And let's forget about this guy and let him rot away in some cold cell for the rest of his life. Yeah. And again, the press, this is really when, you know, obviously I think you had the the Lindenberg baby trial that that was that was bit the biggest trial before this trial. And this is the first time I think the press really gets held to, ta- to task for basically being overzealous and ba- mm. <laughs> basically screwing up the investigation as far as focusing in on one individual and like you said you know every day they would ramp it up and i talked about it last week about how it was like every other day would be a headline about why isn't he arrested or why isn't he questioned and then the statement that you just asked or said about why isn't there an inquest and guess what there was an inquest the next day and it's like and you mentioned the the cleveland press and the plane dealer being broadcast all across the country at that point and yeah nationally now the new york times is running stuff the daily news the post the chicago tribune i mean it's everywhere and it's a media circus i mean they called it a media carnival right so i mean it's 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 really it's it's a shame it's a stain on the press for to a degree because they really were the ones that made that singular focus. And then we always talk about how the police focus, you know, on one suspect and that blinds them to others, potential suspects. And you cannot disagree that the papers were doing the same exact thing. Right. I mean, it, isn't that what they were basically doing? They were trying to steer this investigation to just convict him. Well, it's it's shoddy and uh, dishonest journalism at the end of the day, but it but it's sold it's, newspapers. <laughs> it's wonderful for the reader, right? True. That's your customer. It, it's like a daily soap opera that you're going to tune into. Oh man, I can't wait for tomorrow's paper to pick it up and figure out it, it, it did did Doctor Sam do this? You know, people people want to know for themselves whether it's going to be tried or not. They want to they want to be able to read the facts. They want to be able to tear through the case and sip their morning coffee and get up and when they go off to their job that day, they want to they want to go, you know what? All right, I got something to talk to old Jim about at the water cooler. I'm pretty certain the shepherd guy's guilty and that's because the uh the local media has told me so. But um it's a fascinating case from that angle and to see how it played out in the papers, even though they were, I mean, they were really force feeding it to us at, by that point. And then you have a judge. The first judge takes a look at this thing and says, there's not really much here, um, you know, and, and, and I've, I've heard the the statements and, and read that, that, that there was quote unquote, nothing, you know, no evidence against Shepard. And I, I don't know that that is the full story. Um, who knows? It's, it's really hard to say. I'm guessing that a judge is looking this, at this thing and going, there might be something here, but, but we, we got one shot at this. And if, 
if you know he's there to represent the the community and uphold the law and the laws that we have put into place and a judge does not want a mistrial that i mean that that goes against everything they're supposed to do and does not want something brought before their court that has no business being there yet that's that's not ready one way or another right i mean you notice that they release him you know on bail because like you said they didn't have anything so quote unquote uh but again he gets indicted the next day for murder Hmm. and is arrested and then isn't released until his acquittal 10 years later um you know it's really interesting to think about how the first trial okay you know one of the things that stood out was all the media obviously the first three or four rows of the courtroom were all dedicated to media they had this huge table with all of sam's lawyers i mean he had the means and the money and the power to fight this case but again with the public's uh access to the press and all the articles that they were writing i mean the jury wasn't sequestered no I mean, if you think about a failure as as a judge in the biggest trial of the century at this point, you don't sequester the jury. And not only that, you have the jury get interviewed by reporters as well as just they they're never even questioned about what they know about the case or heard about the case after certain broadcasts have been made. I think that's a complete failure on the judge's part. And what the what i mean they it's like they were purposely doing that it's like they were turning a blind eye ah you know (laughs) though they won't listen to that stuff well and then that when at the end of the day that's when as a community you stand up and you say you know what we don't care for this and we're not going to reelect um you know these people that 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 have flawed our system but he won re-election (laughs) right well right again but but the people had the power to make sure that that didn't happen (laughs) um and and the thing is that's the power of the press especially back in the 1950s yeah if you had the press on your side as someone who's seeking election you almost had the thing in the bag right? right And so why not dedicate the first three rows to the media? Why not give them carte blanche to, to do what, what they will with, with your trial. And um, they turned the courtroom. I mean, the whole courthouse into basically a media empire. They they were broadcasting radio, television, uh, you know, obviously newspapers were being stories were being written there and, you know, telegraphed or whatever, you know, back in the day. And, that was the whole courthouse just inundated with reporters. And again, it cannot be harped on enough that the jury wasn't sequestered. I mean, anybody in their right mind, if they were on the jury, why wouldn't they pick up the newspaper and read it? I mean, they're looking at something else in the newspaper regardless. How could they avoid the front page? You know, we did We actually did a talk on this uh, case a few years ago back at the uh, Ohio Crime and Corruption event at the uh, Ohio Historic Society, I believe is the it, it's changed its name over the years. So I get confused on I think it's the History Society. But, but that's one uh, of the reasons that's one of the you told me that before. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on to discuss this case, because I knew that you had done that talk. It was a fascinating day at the uh, history society, they, they provided a, a lot of uh, photographs and newspaper clippings from the time period that people were able to view and look at before we gave our little talk, our true crime garage talk uh, there in one of the auditoriums. And they even had a, um, a nutshell diagram or, or constructed of the the house the layout mm-hmm. of the house itself sure. with with furniture and everything and it was really fascinating to be able to hold that up and, and show the people in the audience and point and say you know this is where Marilyn was this is where the son was sleeping this is where uh sam says that he fell asleep on the the day bed and you can see that the their guests left through 
um, the front door. There's some question if, if the door was locked or not, there's different, um, it was a different time and place. And right, it's but a there safe was, area too. Well, even more so though, there were different statements about the, the door being locked. Some who had said the door was locked and then others who said that the door was not locked. Um, regardless, the interesting thing though, too, is you were able to really take a look at the, the blood spatter evidence. And that is where a lot of this case, I mean, th- those are, there are truths in there that cannot be denied when you look at that room. And the, the simplest way to explain this to someone that may not, not fully understand is this poor woman was basically brutally beaten as she's, she's on the bed. And when, when whoever her attacker was an intruder or Dr. Shepard, as they're striking her, when they, when they pull back up the weapon to strike again is when you're going to get cast off and that's going to create blood spatter. And you can actually view that room and determine where the attacker was when they were striking her at certain points during the attack based off of where blood spatter did not end up behind the individual at all. It almost, you can almost, uh, envision an outline or or, or a, a shadow or silhouette of the killer themselves off of the wall based around where the blood spatter goes. And so there are some truths in there. Now, keep in mind, this is 1954, so science had not caught up to this case yet. And I, I really feel like had this, whatever went down that night on the, on the shores of Lake Erie, that had that happened in 2010, 2015, or last night, we would have a whole entirely different outcome. And I think much, much quicker too. We would, we would have been led to a much, uh, to a conclusion much quicker than, well, we never, we never did get a conclusion, I guess, in this case. So. Yeah. And and you look back at that case and you think about 1954 and what the investigators had to work with and, you know, really it was fingerprint evidence and maybe blood typing. But it, again, it was uh, very, very, very early on in the days of detectives and uh, investigating murders. And they didn't know what to look for. Whereas in 2010 and now we've had plenty of examples of people who have lied. And if, you know, if there would have been an experienced interrogator, from today interviewing Sam in 1954, if he would have done, if he was the killer, he would have been arrested probably that, that same day, in my opinion. Correct. Correct. If, if he was, if, I mean, if, yeah. And, and it, yeah, it's, it's difficult to say, but, but yeah, I agree. I think the outcome would be completely different. Well, it goes to show you, too, when his second trial comes around and, you know, he's acquitted. Well, or let's see, he's acquitted and not acquitted. He's released and then they appeals appeals court votes two to one to reinstate his conviction. But they allow him to stay off, you know, out of jail on bail. And his trial lasts only a month compared to the, you know, six month or four month ordeal that he had gone through before and then he's found not guilty and well that's because whether he's guilty or not that's because you have Effley bailey there i mean when uh, when corrigan died bailey took over yeah and so (laughs) you don't have to like the guy i don't care if you think that he's that he's putting killers out on the streets or not at the end of the day his job is to defend people who are being tried for heinous crimes and whether you think OJ did it or not, um, I, I have a shirt. True Crime Garage has a shirt that says OJ did it. So the, the, you know where I stand on that. But um, Effley Bailey is a brilliant, brilliant man. I mean, he is the the Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson of his profession. True. And and it would have taken Michael Jordan or the Magic Johnson of their profession to get OJ Simpson off. And he was part of that dream team yeah. that 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 helped with that. And then in this case, we have a young Effley Bailey, who's really, um, 
making a name for himself. And he did a lot of things at that trial that had not been done before, you know, the discussing of blood evidence and such. And it was trial by press. And it was also there. There was also some worry about that, right? Like, oh, you don't want to make this this trial too complicated for the jurors so that they can't even understand what you're what you're saying. But um, at the end of the day, it's conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. And so, who cares if you make it too confusing for the the juries to understand? You're probably in, at a better off point from a defense standpoint if they are confused because if they if they are confused it's difficult for them to say beyond a reasonable doubt this man killed uh, his wife right and that then you go back to the first trial okay they they have in the papers that this woman has a baby mm-hmm out of wedlock has an affair with Dr. Sam Shepard. And, and now they're having a baby. And then we find out, well, that that's that, not even true. No, no not, not even true. No truth to that. She just wanted to be part of the story. Um, Shocking. I mean, you know what? I, I, I really wonder at the end of the day, you know, this, this trial by 12, the jurors, I wonder if you, if you lined them up, it, did 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 just one person out of that 12 go guilty because of that that uh affair that fake affair that, that did not happen um well he had other affairs so there was plenty of reason to true, dislike true. him as a person so yeah people have personal uh nobody's doubting that but this is the one that was in the paper yeah the they time, broadcast the and they broadcast it. it and stuff and it was like uh is there any legitimacy to this? Not one bit. And there was also like, I mean, they would talk about how it was Marilyn was killed with a uh, a surgical tool, mm-hmm. and which is not true, which is a hundred percent false, right? And was never brought up in trial. Again, right. broadcast and I mean, broadcast and published in the newspapers. There's every indication from from what I've reviewed over the years in this case, that she would have been killed with, with maybe more than one object, but it was very likely something in the room with her, maybe a lamp or something that was heavy in the room with her or, and, or a flashlight that would, one could easily come to the conclusion that the, the intruder brought with them to, to, but but yet they never found a murder weapon. Correct. Correct. Very interesting. And then, you know, F. Lee Bailey does does his magic. And I do want people to know that I'm going to put a I've got a 15 minute interview with him from the I think 1964, either. I think it was before the retrial, whatever. But it's very interesting. It's like 15 minutes and I'm going to play it at the end of this episode. So definitely take a listen to it. But once he was acquitted, the fact that, you know, again, he was a huge national story. He's on Johnny Carson a week after mm. a week yeah. after a week after his acquittal. He was a, he was a international celebrity at this point. And I, you know, I mentioned in the first episode, I think about how, you know, there was some connection between him and the fugitive, the show and the movie. And, you know, I've had people on Twitter say that, no, that was just a coincidence. And it's like, well, if it was the biggest story in the world, even if it, the writer said it was not true or it was a coincidence. It was still subconsciously influenced by this trial. I mean, give me a break. And uh, you think about what he went through after he was acquitted. I mean, he became a pro wrestler. Well, yeah. And so, yeah, it's. And married and married one of, let's see. He married Ariane. (laughs) Tabahones, who she's, she's one degree away from being de- a Nazi. She's doing. She went to Hitler's Nazi youth camps, and then she tried to sell a book about their life together. And apparently, shocking, the New York publishers weren't interested because she went on to say that the Hitler youth camps were similar to the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. Well, and you know, in your defense, there, Bill, um, one of my favorite authors, Thomas Harris has said and he's he's a uh, fiction a fictional author 
and he says that everything that he writes is true. Meaning, yes, these are their stories that he has created, but there, there are truths in them. There, there are, they stem from true real life stories that, that were either in the paper or um, crimes that actually happened. And so in retaliation to that, I, I can't speak much to the TV show, the fugitive. I, I've probably only seen bits and pieces of it. And, and yeah, I mean, I haven't watched it. It was, 1960s right and but but the movie itself the 1993 movie the fugitive great movie there's no way that it doesn't have some it's not based off haired man the yeah the guy's a doctor an intruder kills his wife for an unbeknownst reason it's you know there's a conspiracy involved at the end of the day but one of my favorite scenes in that movie and one of my favorite scenes of out of any like uh crime movie crime thriller movie is uh the the part where um tommy lee jones almost catches up i know to, exactly this part to harrison ford yeah and harrison ford turns and looks at him and he says i didn't kill my wife and tommy lee jones goes i don't care and because you know Tommy Lee Jones's job is just to bring the man in. The guy's a fugitive and and he he's not there to try him to to put 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 the doctor on trial and to figure out if the guy did it or not. No, he's just tasked with with apprehending him. And uh it, it's brilliant piece of uh, of film because it's the two characters at their at their purest, at their at when you scrape everything away this is a man who has been wrongfully convicted face to face with a man who's trying to apprehend him. And the man that apprehends him, all he cares about at the end of the day is bringing this guy in, whether he did it or not. So that was a brilliant movie, but um, back to, to the case. Did you, when, when you were reviewing this, did you find, and we talked about murder weapon there for, for a minute. Did you find any obvious statements or any obvious conclusion that that anything was missing from the home other than what was believed to have been quote unquote stolen or 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 um or I made to look like it was saw stolen? something about uh fire pokers or a fire poker that was discovered at the Hawks house uh but that was in 1982 and I don't know if that came from the Shepherd house I would have to double check on that um so the hawks if that in so fact the, were the murder weapon the hawks ended up with the murder weapon and, and yeah. they were just fine with that for so, years so yeah it's it's interesting um so like cleveland state has all of sam shepherd's stuff like they donated all of all of the uh you know whatever uh all the trial transcripts and all that other stuff to the school and I'm gonna say that let's see. Um yeah, I mean it, it was one of those things I never really saw exactly where they were, where you know, where they found that where they found the uh fire poker. Mm-hmm. But I know it was I mean I know it was at the house, I just don't know if it belonged to the um to Sam. And I know that he was looked at as a possible suspect. I mean that that we know. Cuz that was one of the possibilities that they brought up as he was possibly having an affair with Marilyn and that's why Sam or I don't know. No, it was Sam was having an affair with Spencer's wife. wife. Right, and, yeah, wife. that was the rumor, but again, rumor innuendo that's really all this case was really built about so great another case where we have an unsolved murder and they find a fire poker years hmm. after the fact hmm. that <laughs> and, sounds like that sounds awfully familiar yeah uh, you know i this is a difficult case to come to a conclusion obviously we have I, owls <laughs> right um but I, I will say this as far as the intruder theory goes in this case. It is an ideal home for someone to break into for mm-hmm. several reasons. One, we, we talked about how it, it backs up to Lake Erie. Um, the, the layout of the property itself 
if you were to enter that home in the middle of the night from, from the, from the rear of the home, it's very unlikely that you're going to have anyone neighbors or otherwise see you come and go from that house. So from that standpoint, from a, from a criminal, a criminal mind standpoint, the house, if you're looking to burglarize, this is an ideal house. This is an ideal neighborhood for that because you're talking, you're going to find items of value because of the neighborhood, because of the, these are upper class people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's easy. You can, you can, you're, you're cloaked under the cover of, of night and the, the layout of the property itself. And just the fact that there's no one living behind them. And yeah, then if I mean, you take it, a, take it a step further, say they never found a murder weapon. Well, wh- what, what does a guy that, that intends to burglarize a home in the middle of the night bring with them for their adventure, their, their excursion, right. a flashlight. Uh-huh. And if, it, if he has to use it to beat somebody to death with, once he's inside the home, he's going to take it with him when he leaves. And there, there is probably the simplest answer as to why you didn't find a murder weapon. Now you can also take that a step further and say, well, Sam Shepard was no idiot. He was no, uh, moron. <laughs> I like to say, uh, and he probably, you know, he could have beat his wife and then, then thrown the, uh, murder weapon in Lake Erie for all we know. Uh, but there were items that were, were removed from the house who removed them. We can't say 100% certain, but they were removed from the home. They were found outside of the home. It's believed that maybe these items were, were, were dropped by the burglar after the, the scuffle with Shepard outside possible. Uh, also thought that maybe they, hid them to try to come back and retrieve them at another time is always a possibility. Then we have the weird situation of, of a piece of her jewelry. I believe it was her ring that, um, this character it's found in his possession. Yeah. That... Marilyn Shepard's ring is found in, uh, who was it? Eberling. Richard Eberling. And there is some thought that he he may have stole that from like so that sounds like a very damning piece of evidence, right? But I think if I remember this correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Bill. Like mm-hmm. I said, it's been a couple of years, but if I remember correctly, that the story behind that that ring, that stolen ring, it's actually believed that he stole it from her sister from Marilyn Shepard's sister. It was at a, at a later date. It wasn't stolen that night when, when Marilyn was attacked. Right. Exactly. It sounds like, you know, it sounded like, Oh, you know, he took it from there, but I think it was actually he took it from her, bro- uh, from Sam's brother, Sam's brother. Okay. Yeah. And you know, you were talking about how he could have thrown the, um, and we were just talking about the murder weapon. Yeah. So, According to uh, famoustrials.com, the three months after, and this is July 1955, so Sam's already been convicted. Uh, and so it's a year after the murder. A swimmer who lived next to the Shepherd home, quote, found a dented flashlight, not a surgical instrument, in the shallow water in Lake Erie. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And look, there's a million ways that that flashlight could have ended up in Lake Erie. Of course. It could have come from any number of people. Could have come um, from Sam. Could have come from Sam. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, and you think about, again, I always talk about this this particular case, you know, about trial by media. And, you know, it's interesting that the publisher of the Cleveland Press actually wrote a in his autobiography talked about how, you know, how strong of a role he played in bringing Shepard to justice. And it's, uh, you know, it's crazy. And, and you think about all the tragedy that surrounded the family, you know, I think Sam's dad killed himself. Marilyn's dad killed himself or no, Sam's mother killed himself, but uh, Marilyn's dad killed himself. And then Sam's dad died like a year after he was convicted some of them were uh, dealing with with uh, ailments, though, right? Weren't some of them dealing with some pretty severe health issues? Yeah, well, um, Marilyn's father was. 
significantly. Okay. But the other, uh, oh, not gosh, I keep screwing that up. It's Sam's father that was had the real issues, and then Sam's mom killed herself in a motel somewhere in Cleveland. So interesting. Hmm. And uh, yeah, they actually grew up, you know, not grew up, but where Sam lived after his trial is about two miles from where I live. And it's the townhouses that he's interviewed in front of in one of the AP videos. It's like this. They look exactly the same. The townhomes. It's just it's so bizarre how close this is to again another bay village story another unsolved murder uh and another international or national mystery well and i think that shepherd eventually moved down to my neck of the woods to Mm -hmm. columbus in in a, a small area that we call german village and that was so he could somewhat practice medicine again i think that is correct yeah and then because good luck having any clientele up up in northeast ohio after. yeah because columbus is so far away that you right. would not know about sam shepherd <laughs> no that's true so final thoughts nick i know that you are uh on a time uh restraint today so um any final thoughts that you have on the shepherd case and whether or not you think you can make a definitive well conclusion I I don't know that I can make a conclusion, uh, judge jury executioner style here, but, uh, I would, I would find it very difficult to, to put a, a guilty verdict if I were a jury member in either of those trials. I, I don't see enough here to convict this man. And in fact, I, I, if I had to choose gun to my head, I would think I go with the intruder theory that I think that uh, it's more likely that, that there was an intruder. And, and I understand that the presented the percentages and the statistics tell us that Sam Shepard probably, you know, more likely than not was the killer, but I go back to the, the son and, you know, he didn't wake up some have to wonder, well, maybe he did wake up and maybe when, when he saw who was killing his mother, it was his father. And, but then if you're going to go that angle, really think of, really think about that for a second, because I've heard people try to apply that to this case. What, what it would be his motive all those years later to stand by his father and, and not hate his father. If, if in fact he did see his father kill his mother, it, it makes no sense at the end of the day. And that's not what happened. That didn't happen. And, and so I, I see a situation where we have three people in the home. And unfortunately the, this woman is brutally attacked. There is some question too, about sexual assault mm-hmm. in this case. And when we want to talk about statistics and apply those to, you know, solved case statistics to this unsolved case, if we want to apply that and, and, and say, Hey, what is the likelihood? What are the percentages here comparing Sam Shepard as prime suspect to the intruder theory? If in fact there was a sexual assault, then the statistics go way down. The percentages go way down for the husband being the actual attacker. So Again, it comes back to science and forensics and and investigative tools and resources were not up to speed. They are not where they are today. And uh, back in 1954, in the the 50s, there are a lot of questions that would have become answers based off of, of what we're able to do today. Yeah. And I would say that when I first started looking into this case a while back, I went in with the, and I'm not going to lie, I went in with the belief that it was Sam. And I, the more that I look at it, the more I listen to his interview, the fact that he took, okay, so if if the story's real that he chased him down, this intruder down the stairs to the beach, that would follow up and basically, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, help your side of the story about 
the person coming in from the back and knowing mm-hmm. the back way. And that's exactly what what I think could have happened is that's where you the way you came in. Well, why isn't that the way you're going to go out? Especially in in haste, and when you're when you're f- trying to now flee from someone who's trying to to either apprehend you or attack you or or what have you, you're going to go the route that you know, and and we see that again, applying statistics, very often the intruder will will flee from the same uh, point of entry into the home, and look at the end of the day. Richard Eberling is as good of a suspect as Dr. Sam Shepard. Eberling is if a freaking, <laughs> he's a freaking creep. He's, our, mean, he's he, a convicted killer. He's a murderer. He's a creep. And he, you know, he fits some of the weird descriptions that people say they may have saw someone in the neighborhood that night. Um, you know, and it's interesting that you say, Hey, you went into this thinking that Dr. Sam Shepard did kill Marilyn Shepard that night. And then you've kind of rethought that. And when you come out the other end of this, you're thinking much differently. When we gave our talk to that auditorium at the crime and corruption event, the Ohio crime and corruption event, there must have been, I would estimate, about 50, 60 people in in the audience. And we probably discussed the case for a good 45 minutes to an hour. And we did much like what you did last week, where we we just started at the beginning, chronologically went through the whole thing. Um, we were able to go in depth with uh, Richard Eberling and some of the other things that Effley Bailey presented at trial um, as this case progressed. And at the end of at the end of our talk, I asked for a little audience participation. I said, you know, I'm going to give you three options. And when I get to the option you like the best, I want you to raise your hand. And um, the options were Dr. Sam Shepard, Richard Eberling, or an unknown offender. And the one that got the most hands at the end of that talk was Richard Eberling. And so it's, it's, again, it would be very difficult based off of what we had, the knowledge that we had, the evidence that we had or did not have back then, it would be difficult for a a conviction of Dr. Sam Shepard in my mind. I agree. And if I was on that trial jury, I would have probably voted to acquit because again, there was enough reasonable doubt and it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem right. And again, trial by media is not a way to make a conviction stand. Let's remember, it only took a month to find him not guilty the second trial. So, Well, thanks again, once, once again, Bill, for having me on. It's always a pleasure to drink a couple cups of coffee with you and talk always. some true crime. If there's anybody listening to uh, Who Killed that has not checked out True Crime Garage, check out our podcast, True Crime Garage. The this best. week... We just released two shows about uh, a strange disappearance of, of two young men, two separate incidents down in Florida, and the last known person to see them was a uh, sheriff's deputy, the same sheriff's deputy. So very interesting case out of Florida that we covered this week. Next week, we got two different cases that we're going to cover on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then, Bill, you're going to like this the following week we are really taking a deep dive into some old Ohio cold cases. So check out True Crime Garage podcast. Wherever you hear this wonderful podcast, Who Killed, is the same place you can hear ours. Yeah, you take care of yourself. Thanks again so much. And I always appreciate, and I know the audience always appreciates your knowledge. So Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. Thank you again for joining us this week on Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. And many thanks to Nick of the True Crime Garage podcast. You can find all his shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your favorite shows. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at BillHuffman3 or on Instagram at slow, S-L-O, underscore, burn media. And again, thanks so much for listening. And as always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. 
It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.